Hi, everyone. Let me add my welcome to all the new people. Let me add it to Melissa's. Um, good to see everyone. So tonight we are just back at the beginning of the book. What, as Melissa said, this got started with just a few of us who on Monday nights, we'd get together and do a chapter a week um, of the big book. And then it just We've opened it up. Now we have two nights, but we're back where we started. So we'll start um, at the doctor's opinion. So if any of you have your books, I am on um, in the fourth edition, Roman numeral 25, that's XXV. And we'll see at the beginning, he says, um, we have Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. So when the doctor's opinion was written, there was this book had already been written. This is to me, this is almost like a book review that a doctor read this book, thought it was awesome and agreed to give it like a really good review. So he says, I'm sure you'll be interested in the plan of recovery described in this book. So that's what um, the focus on. That's what the doctor's focus was on. Like, hey, you know, anyone who's suffering, there is a plan of recovery, a way that the obsession with alcohol or for us food can be removed. And then it starts with a very brief letter. And in it, he says a couple things. He said, you know, this all started my involvement with these alcoholics. When I met a guy, who I had come to regard as hopeless. And, you know, a lot of times we think hope is good and sometimes it is, right? Um, but I remember being in OA my first seven years, binging my brains out and people would say, just keep coming, it'll get better. And what that did is it gave me false hope. Like just putting my butt in a chair a couple times a week was going to get me better. And of course that doesn't make sense because if we translate it to another illness, like let's say diabetes, and I went to Diabetics Anonymous and the solution is insulin, but instead of teaching me how to inject insulin, they just said, just keep coming to these DA meetings and you'll get better. Well, that's false hope. And I would eventually end up in a diabetic coma. So of course we should keep coming because it's better than not coming, but to just keep coming and you'll get better, that's false hope. Hopeless is good. Hopeless is when we say, um, and the way it worked for me is I just felt like I'm on a runaway train that has no brakes and there's nothing I can do about it. And it's not going to get better tomorrow or the day after. It's going to keep being as horrible as it is today. And only when I did that, I think, was I willing to take directions and do what I needed to, to find real hope. And real hope is there is a God. He still exists. And more than existing, he is active in the lives of his children, us, and is ready willing and certainly able to help us. That's real hope. So the doctor goes on, talks about this patient of his, and he said, when he was in the hospital, he had certain ideas that um, he acquired 
concerning a possible means of recovery. So just in a nutshell, what are those ideas? Trust God, right? We live our lives doing what we think God would want, trusting him with the outcome, um, clean house, which means we look at the wreckage of our past and we fix it and help others. And he says, we did that. And then this man, this first alcoholic that Dr. Silkworth treated says, um, as part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. This has become the basis of this fellowship. So we trust God, we clean house, we clear away the damage of our past, and then we carry this message. That is the basis, um, they said, of our growing fellowship. We carry this message. And not because we, you know, we have anyone has stock in Alcoholics Anonymous or Overeaters Anonymous and the more members, the better. We all know that, right? This is free, always was, always will be. But because that's how I stay abstinent by carrying this message. Um, you know, I was gonna say, I don't do it because I love it. I do it because I'm selfish and I wanna stay abstinent. But as I'm saying it, I'm thinking, well, that's not true. I do it, um, yes, because I need to, to stay abstinent. Um, but as the book says, I think in chapter six, at the moment we're putting our own lives in order. So we help others because we have to, but there's a change. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum usefulness to God and the people about us. I fit myself to it and God fits my heart to that so that I want to help others. So that it's not a chore, it's a joy. And that I think is like the definition of joy. When what you want to do and what you're supposed to do are the same thing. What could be better than that, right? So, but anyway, so for us, Carrying this message is the basis of recovery. So on Roman numeral 26, XXVI, he starts talking about the allergy. And um, I know there's some people who might be able to talk for an hour about like the allergy. I am not one of them. So I'm going to talk for about a minute about the allergy. So what he's saying basically is that... Um, you know, if someone is allergic to strawberries, they may break out in hives, but there's some food. So if an alcoholic has a physical allergy to alcohol, well, all alcoholics do, that defines it. Having one drink doesn't make them break out in hives. It makes them break out in an irresistible craving where they have no choice but to have a second drink and then a 10th drink and then however many until they're drunk, no matter it costs them their jobs, their families, whatever. So in the case of compulsive eaters, um, there, I think there's two things. Again, we're veering a tiny bit into the realm of opinion, tiny bit, but um, there's the allergy component, right? That if there's foods that we're allergic to, different for everyone, that we have one, and instead of breaking out in hives, 
we absolutely cannot stop. And as a recovered compulsive eater, I would add to the allergy component, the going off my food plan component. So let's say my food plan says I could have two cups of vegetables and I decide that I will have two and a half cups of lettuce. Guarantee it will not be long before I am in full out eating compulsively. Um, now, again, there's some people who say no one should ever have fill in the blank ingredients. Um, that we should never have no compulsive eater. People don't let their sponsees have it. And then there's some people who say, whatever food plan you're on is fine. And I like for guidance, look to page 102, where they're talking, um, they say, many of us keep liquor in our homes. We often need it to carry green recruits through a severe hangover. So they actually gave it to newly recovering alcoholics who had a severe hangover. They might give them, I don't know, half a drink. I have no idea. I, I know very little about alcohol, but they do it. And they say, some of us serve it to our friends who aren't alcoholics. Some think we should never serve liquor to anyone. We never argue this question. And so the whole thing about allergies and food plans and you know all the minutia of it, I just say, I have no opinion. I have no opinion on how people should run their food plans, should dictate how their sponsees should do their food plans. Some sponsors get very involved. Some people, some sponsors don't wanna hear anything about someone's food plan. Um, so I personally believe and require of my sponsees that they be on a food plan for the simple reason that that's the best way to tell if you're abstinent or not. If you're an alcoholic, if you have one sip of alcohol, you're not abstinent. For us, if we deviate at all from our food plan, we're not abstinent. So if we don't have a food plan, how do we know if we're deviating? Again, there's some people who may be able to not be on a food plan. I don't know. Um, but I've resigned from the debating society. So um, that's my take on allergy. Um, the bottom of the page, they continue on and they say, we work at our solution on the spiritual as well as the altruistic plane. So again, we'll see over and over the twin themes in the book. Faith without works is dead that we need both. We have to trust and rely on God, altruistic, selfless work for the benefit of other people. There has to be both. And it says, we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who is very jittery or befogged. So at this um, workshop, sometimes we use the term hospitalization and we don't mean that people get, you know, carted away and put in a white straitjacket. What, when we use the term here, um, generally, and again, everyone can sponsor however they want, but generally, um, what I mean if I tell my sponsees is like when you start working this program, we're going to consider it like a hospitalization period, like you're in outpatient rehab. You go to work, you take care of your family obligations, 
you take care of your hygiene and you're going to spend pretty much the bulk of your the rest of your time on recovery this isn't the time to like take up salsa dancing or a new hobby this is the time and it generally takes what i have found four to eight weeks on average to get through the steps so a time of intense focus and just like if someone's in the hospital, they're not thrown into a room with the door locked and said, you know, see you in a few days. A lot of structure and a lot of support. So when we sponsor, we generally give people, I give people like 20 phone numbers and say, here are people strong in recovery, build yourself a network. Um, but I believe that I can start working the steps with someone right away. Um, because unlike an alcoholic, I would say in most cases, there may be exceptions. If an alcoholic is dead drunk, an hour later, he's not going to be able to understand anything about the steps. But if someone's just had, you know, some candy bars and they're bloated and feel disgusting, it doesn't take, I don't think, three days until it wears off. So I can start working with them. If you're not binging right now and I'm sponsoring you, I can start working with you. Again, opinion, and there's people wiser than I am who may see it differently. Um, so I think that's a matter that reasonable minds can have different opinions on. Okay, um, page 27. He's talking about, um, again, he's going back to the guy who came into his hospital. And he says, while here, and I believe he's talking about Bill Wilson, he acquired some ideas which he put into practical application at once. And Bill Wilson says on um, regular page 14 that, let me read it to you guys. Um, while I lay in the hospital, the thought came. I love that, right? Not I thought, the thought came. God's already directing his thoughts. The thought came that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what had been so freely given me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They in turn might work with others. This is he's lying in the hospital bed and already he's thinking, how can I be helpful? So what I would say, if you're new here, do what you know. You may not be able to go out and sponsor someone today. In fact, if you're brand new, you can't but do what you know. And in fact, um, Karen put together a list of recovery principles that we can practice. They are on our website. Um, we can start being honest from day one. We can start thinking about others and practicing self-sacrifice for the good of other people on day one. So we do what we know. And the doctor continues on his description of the people who've recovered. And he shows some things they have in common. One, unselfishness. I'm at the bottom of Roman numeral 27, XXVII. Unselfishness, putting the welfare of others ahead of our own. The two, the entire absence of profit motive. We don't charge for this. Three, a community spirit. We don't, you know, thank God, even in times of pandemics, we don't have to recover by ourselves. We can do it together. You know, 
Today, I may be the one who's strong. Tomorrow, I may be the one flat on my face who needs help. And four, they believe in themselves and still more in the power which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. That's reading that sentence is one of the times I wish I could draw because in my head, I have this image of like someone walking toward this like big gate, you know, with like a skull and crossbones um, and then God pulling them back. So that's what a doctor saw that this program offers. So turning ahead to the next page, he talks about um, frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices to say something like, you have such a pretty face. If you only lost X number of pounds, it doesn't work. I don't know of one person who ever heard then said, oh, you're right. I have a pretty face. I'm just 30 pounds, 50 pounds, however many pounds overweight. Now that you've pointed out, thank you. Now I'll go on a diet and stay on a diet. It doesn't work. Um, and it, but it tells us what does work. Our ideals must be grounded in a power greater than ourselves if we are to recreate our lives. Not fix them a little. We need to be recreated. God isn't in the, you know, um, mend it business. He's in the transformation business. And that's what our hope has to be in. That's what our ideals have to be rooted in. Um, Bottom of the page, we're still on Roman numeral 28, XXVII, and it talks about, it says, men and women drink or compulsively eat essentially because they like the effect produced, usually blot out, right? You know, we just like then end up numbed out, vegged out on the couch somewhere, ignoring everything else around us. And it says that... Um, we are restless, irritable, and discontented unless we can experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks that others can take with impunity. So it says a lot of times, the reason why we pick up is because we are uncomfortable and we want that sense of ease and comfort. Well, one of the things we have to learn in recovery is Sometimes we are going to be uncomfortable. If I have a child at school who I think may be failing a class, I may be uncomfortable. You know, what can I do about it? If I'm uncomfortable because of the war going on in Ukraine now, which I am, my kids are adopted from Ukraine. So this like tears my heart out. Um, but I have to learn to live with being uncomfortable. So this program gives us some great tools, right? It shows us how to resolve resentments, how to resolve fears um, so that we're not so uncomfortable all the time. But sometimes we just are. Sometimes things are uncomfortable and we just have to say, it's okay. It's okay. You know, no one ever promised me that my life was gonna be perfectly smooth sailing all the time. Um, and for me, I think it's really prideful to think I deserve a life that's, you know, pain-free and problem-free. Like, who am I to deserve that? So if things are a little uncomfortable sometimes, 
that's okay. And then the doctor talks about what he sees. He says, um, people succumb to the desire and the phenomenon of craving develops. Remember the phenomenon of craving, we want it. And once we have the first compulsive bite, we can't stop. And then there's a spree. We emerge remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink or eat compulsively again. And then it says, I love this part. This is repeated over and over. Okay, I don't love that part, but what comes after? Unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope of his recovery. On the other hand, and strange as this may seem, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily, easily able to control his desire for alcohol or food, the only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. Okay, so one day it's impossible. I'm remorseful, I make promises, doesn't work then I have an entire psychic change. What are they talking about? They're talking about a spiritual experience that's described on page 25. It says we've had deep and effective spiritual experiences, which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. God rewires our hearts and in our, the soil of our, our new soul soil, the illness can't live, the illness is expelled. And what happens? So we're suddenly able to easily control our desire for excess food because we're different people. We've been, remember, it says on the page before, recreated. We just have to follow a few simple rules, not suggestions, rules. So there are certain things that we have to do, right? <clears throat> we have to do God's will as best we can. We have to clean up the wreckage of our past or once we're recovered, the wreckage of the past 24 hours. We have to work hard at helping others and we have to cultivate this wonderful relationship with God. And then um, the doctor goes on and says, men have cried out to me in sincere and despairing appeal. Doctor, I cannot go on like this. I have everything to live for. I must stop, but I cannot. You must help me. It's heartbreaking, but it shows us desire alone isn't enough. Page 24 tells us that at a certain point in the drinking or the eating of every compulsive eater, we cross a line where the most powerful desire to stop is of absolutely no avail. And the doctor says for people like this, and this is a doctor saying this, one feels something more than human power is needed to produce the essential psychic change. So the doctors as good as they are say they can't help it because of course a doctor may be able to go in and give me open heart surgery for a physical heart problem, but he can't go in and do soul surgery on a soul heart problem, can't do it. So 
on page XXX, Roman numeral 30, or bottom of 29 and 30. This I think is something really important. So we talked about sometimes we eat compulsively because we want a sense of ease and comfort. But now he's talking about something different. He's talking about the guys who things are going great. They're about to do a business deal that's gonna work in their favor. And then they went out and they drank. So sometimes, and it says these men were not drinking to escape. So no blot out, no, you know, no um, sense of discomfort. They had a craving beyond their mental control. So I've heard it explained once like this. Um, the, our book tells us that this is a spiritual illness that centers in the mind. So that means in my mind, there's this little illness who's kind of running the show. And yeah, if I'm uncomfortable, resentful, and don't resolve it, boom, moves in. But sometimes everything could be going great. And if I've got untreated compulsive eating, the illness can just say, yeah, Janet, I think you're going to pick up today because it's Monday and I just feel like making you pick up. And there's nothing I can do about it. I am like an army of one fighting an army of 20,000. I can do nothing on my own power. So the doctor is real clear about this. It's not only because we're uncomfortable. Sometimes it's just because. And he says, um, again, we're people who are over remorseful, make many resolutions and never a decision. Well, today I looked up the word resolution and it actually says to make a decision. So what's the difference, right? We make a resolution. I'm not going to eat compulsively. I'm not going, you know, I'm only going to stick to my food plan, a decision. But I think the decision they're talking about should actually be capitalized, like a decision with the capital D, because I think what they're referring to is our third step decision, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. So I can make all the resolutions I want, but remember, I'm an army of one fighting an army of 20,000. I will lose every time. But if I make a decision to turn my will and my life over to God, well, God's like an army of a hundred bazillion. And then, then I've got a prayer, then I've got a chance. So um, I'm gonna flip to page 31, XXX, I, where he says, okay, we've seen how horrible this illness is. What is the solution? And he says, let me tell you the solution by telling you a story. So he says, there's a guy I treated for chronic alcoholism. He had lost everything and was only living to drink. He frankly had admitted and believed that for him, there was no hope, but he accepted the plan outlined in this book. A year later, he called to see me and I experienced a very strange sensation. I knew him by name, partly recognized his features, but their all resemblance ended. From a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck had emerged a man brimming over with self-reliance and contentment. A long time has passed with no return to alcohol. 
Isn't that beautiful? So what does he say? This guy had frankly admitted, believed for him there was no hope. So he took a first step. He knew on his own he was hopeless. He accepted the plan outlined in this book. So he was willing to go to any lengths and he worked the steps. You know, I can be um, willing to go to any lengths, but if I come to you with as a compulsive eater and you tell me to inject insulin, it's not going to work. I may inject the insulin. It's not going to help me put down the food, right? So the plan outlined in this book, these 12 steps. So there has to be willingness. And for the people who are willing, we have to supply them with correct information. And he did that. And then God took care of the transformation from a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck is now a man brimming over with self-reliance and contentment. But here's the secret. See, the doctor calls it self-reliance. I bet if we asked this guy, he would say, I can only appear self-reliant because I'm God-reliant. And the doctor closes talking about this guy by saying, a long time has passed with no return to alcohol. Guys, recovery can be permanent. It is possible to never binge again if we do this work. And then he talks about another guy. Um, he said, this guy decided he was hopeless. He hid in a deserted barn, determined to die. And says he was rescued by a searching party, searching party and in desperate condition brought to me. Rescued by a searching party. God's search and rescue party. You know, sometimes when people are really struggling, it's very easy to just say, yeah, let them just go out there and hurt some more. And yes, sometimes they have to, but sometimes we're supposed to make it easy. I mean, we're always supposed to make it easy for them to come back. And sometimes, and I think this is what they did in the old days. If someone drank, they went out knocking on their door. So, um, but what a beautiful thing, these guys who brought this guy back from the barn. Imagine if they hadn't, right? They were part of God's search and rescue party there. And this guy, you know, was so sad. He said, don't even bother trying to help me because um, unless you can tell me you're going to give me willpower. And then they said, okay, you know, we're going to give him the treatment, which back then they called moral psychology. They said, we doubted if even that would work. But on page, Roman numeral 32, XXXII. However, he did become sold on the ideas contained in this book. He has not had a drink for a great many years. Imagine he's hiding in a barn to drink himself to death. And even when he's rescued by his friends, he's like, it's not going to work. But they gave him hope. And now the doctor says, I see him now and then. And he is as fine a specimen of manhood as one could wish to meet. And then here's the doctor's last sentence. I earnestly advise every alcoholic to read this book through. And though perhaps he came to scoff, he may remain to pray. So the doctor's last pieces of advice are read this book and do what's in it, right? Not just like read it like a novel, read this book and do it. And even if you're here scoffing, even if you're like, 
this God stuff is ridiculous. It says he may remain to pray. Um, why is that important? Because prayer activates the miracle. Um, just like if I went to a doctor's office, right? And I walked in and he looked at me and, and he says like, why are you here? And I just said, look, guess. Well, that's like silly. I would never do that. Prayer, all it is, is talking to God. It's just saying, God, I need help. And just like if we go to the doctor's office, we're ready to hand them a 20. Well, I guess you can't get to any doctor for 20 now. You're ready to hand them, you know, your firstborn child um, as payment. With God, you know what he wants as payment? He just wants a relationship with us. So we go in, we say, God, help. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And that activates the miracle. And just um, the last thing I want to say is that it says, though perhaps he came to scoff, we shouldn't write off scoffers. If someone's here and they say, I don't believe, I don't know, it's okay. They can just, you know, it's okay. Um, the Dr. Paul, who wrote the chapter, Acceptance was the Answer, sat in the back of the room for a year, you know, making talk with his wife, just, you know, say, rolling his eyes at the, the people telling their stories. But he gave us that beautiful chapter that we did um, the other week, Acceptance was the Answer. So I would just say to all of us here, um, if there's anyone new who's not sure, you are certainly welcome here. And I know that like our prayer is that you read this book, you find someone who can help you do it and pray. And with that, 